the epistle of John, as you turn in there, that chorus that we just sang, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let thy glory be above all the earth. Be, be in prayer for this uh, float that we are constructing somehow without adding to or subtracting from the Word of God, lest we be guilty of of what uh, John writes about in the book of Revelation. We've got to figure out how to scrunch down Psalm 19.1 for our, uh, the theme this year for the parade is um, celebration of the arts. And what better place to put on display for people than the heavens are narrating the glory of God and the heavens show His handiwork. And somehow we've got to get that all to squish down on a little banner on the sides of our float. So be in prayer that we can get that done. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask His direction for our study of His inspired and inerrant Word this morning. Father, we do thank You for the privilege that's afforded us without fear of physical persecution, we have the freedoms at our disposal to unite in this church building. We pause to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters who are scattered by persecution, who are meeting in house churches at any odd hours, lest the government find out where they're at and put them to death. We don't know where things are going in our own land, but we, as we see freedoms taken away and it being more difficult to practice what we do here on an, every week, we do not take that for granted. We pray that if you should see fit in your will that you would preserve our freedoms to proclaim the Word of God without fear of repercussions. And should the persecution come, find us faithful that if you should choose and see fit to put us in prison for the Word of God, we would have faithful jail ministries introducing others to the Savior, the one who is not shackled, the truth which is not chained. Would you take your Word and cause us to study it deeply this morning, to understand, to extract the biblical principles, to employ them in application this week? to respond in faith and obedience to the written Word of God that would be doers of Your Word, not hearers only. Might Your Spirit convict us of areas that we need conviction of our sin, and might He exhort us towards holiness and encourage us in righteousness. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Love especially moves Christians to rejoice in being together with other faithful Christians. That's our joy today on the Lord's Day. That's one fact that John rejoices in in 2 John, that he can't wait to come face to face to those that he'd written to, especially this elect lady. Yet John also not only rises to heights of exhilaration in, in intimate personal fellowship, but he also warns us that this kind of love 
doesn't move us to welcome every teacher, but to remain faithful to the ancient truths that have been handed down through the ages. He teaches us this balance of truth in love. He provides theological criteria for extending hospitality. It is both a letter of encouragement and a letter of warning that love must be discerning and not naive. False charity opens her door to false teaching. Second and third John were not widely circulated at the beginning because, possibly because of their brevity uh, and their specific address to a small number. After all, John did write here in Second John to a lady and her children. We don't know if she had oodles of kids like some of us, but uh, he, a select audience initially. You look at his third epistle, and he wrote that to the elder, the beloved Gaius. Gaius. So it wasn't widely circulated, whether it be due to its uh, brief nature or the small number of people addressed. It's seldom quoted in the patristic writings of the early church. But can I submit to you, and, and as we conclude our time in our study of Second John, stating one more time, which I said at the outset of our study a couple weeks ago, that any that ignore Second John do so to their own shame, the church's weakness in not shoring up truth in love, that cautious balance that he speaks so clearly on. Verses 1 through 3 gave us the basis of Christian hospitality where the author introduced himself, he introduced the addressee and his strong affection. He also, in verses 4 through 6, gave us the behavior of Christian hospitality, that if you practice biblical Christian hospitality in love and truth, you walk in the truth, you walk in love, you walk in obedience to God's commands, and he kind of fleshes that out in those few verses. And then last week, we started meandering into the main body of the letter as he moved from abiding in God's commands to not abiding with false teachers. So here, both last week and this week, as we see his concluding command, we see the bounds of Christian hospitality. To bring anybody up to date, if you haven't listened online and you uh, missed the last week, in verse 7, we saw his warning of danger, that these false prophets, are, false teachers are going out in great numbers with any number of heresies. He warns of danger, and in verse 8, he calls them to vigilance, be aware, be sober, be vigilant, and then he pronounces perdition in verse number 9. So we continue to look at the bounds of hospitality. Let's begin in the first verse and end in the last of Second John. You pick the chapter. I'm starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 
I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we've accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. That's where we've been so far. Notice where we're headed today, beginning in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Think about what principles the church can glean from a letter written to a lady who was no doubt part of the local fellowship. Churches have existed long before artifices were ever constructed with steeples on them. If Scripture defines the church as a people and not necessarily a place, though they meet at a particular place, might not have a steeple, And as I'd mentioned in uh, our opening prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on our study this morning, we don't know if we're going to find ourselves back into house churches. If God deems fit in His hidden, mysterious wisdom to cause biblical ministries, whether they be churches or Christian colleges, to lose their tax-exempt status, to try to be stamped out by Caesar, let Caesar know we will not bow. We are held captive to the truth of the Word of God. They often would meet in private homes. If you wanted to jot down a couple of passages to meditate on this afternoon with your cup of coffee, Romans 16.5 and Colossians 4.15 are in regards to those that were meeting in believers' homes. And if traveling deceivers would be allowed to come to these homes and spread their doctrines and then sent on with endorsement by those homes as others were, there was no way to escape their harm. Matter of fact, go back with me to Acts chapter 18 for a moment just to use a biblical illustration to start the sermon with. Sometimes we'll use secular illustrations, but in Acts 18 we see this New Testament first century Christianity as Luke describes what was happening. The church was born on chapter 2. The gospel was being spread. It went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he chronicles in this history book what all took place as the church grew and as the gospel spread and as God was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. In Acts 18... Verses 24 through 28, 
We read of one of Paul's many missionary journeys. In uh, Acts 18.24, we're told that uh, after Paul had, had left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthened all the disciples, we're told in verse 24 that a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, one of those traveling itinerant teachers. We're told that in verse 24 that he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. No heresy. He was teaching an orthodox presentation, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So there wasn't any great church split here, though, though the teacher of Scripture had to be schooled. He got schooled and then was sent out with the church's blessing, whether, whether they laid hands on him, we, we, we don't know. Sent him with their blessing. So as we go to Second John for this last glimpse, let me invite you to notice Paul, uh, John's final plea in his passionate farewell. His final plea in his passionate farewell as we seek to guard the truth, the bounds of hospitality that John began to introduce to us last week in the body of the letter, this comes right after his reminder commanding them to love one another. Verse 5, it is, it is a love that walks according to God's commands. So we're commanded to watch out. Those that come to us teaching God's truth, proclaim teachers, we'd examine them, watch out, and don't take Him in if it's not orthodox Christology. And so here John is, is moving from his message of exhortation to this message of warning, warning of danger. There's so many applications as we go into this text to think about, but I'll let the text bring those to mind as we move through it. If you stay in a situation that is very clearly marked out as unhealthy like John does, you, maybe you stay in a non-teaching church or a non-biblical church, you're guilty of what John warns the elect lady of in her biblical hospitality. You can, promote, you can proclaim love all you want, but if it's not according to the truth, it is not love. Since there is dissent, there's divergence, there's apparently aggressive evangelization by members of rival groups, rival to the gospel, who are not in accord with apostolic teaching. And so John gives this final command, and it is most final and an objective warning, no wiggle room. You claim Christ, you claim to be following in obedience to His commands, Well, notice this command from the beloved apostle who identifies himself as the elder. 
He says, if one comes to you and does not bring this teaching, verse 10, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Notice the prohibition in verses 10 and 11. The way the English translators chose to translate, you notice how that verse 10 starts off with the if, and you might think, well, this might never come to pass. Well, this is, an un, is not an if of might, but an if that will definitely come to pass. It presents a scenario that was common to the first century, and John had already found out had been taking place. So you could translate this if as since. Since people will come to you not bringing this teaching. Don't think that you're an island. If anyone comes as there are those that come. This is similar to what we see taking place. We, we started off in in uh, Acts 18 as Paul was on his missionary journeys itinerant teachers be bopping around going from one church strengthening another group of people it's what our missionaries do if we can't go to Croatia we send people to Croatia if we can't go to the Philippines we stay home and we earn money so that we can give it to send those that go on our behalf to take the gospel so Paul as he was on his missionary journeys would enter the synagogues and be afforded opportunity to teach because of his credentials as a rabbi. Paul wasn't the only one. Itinerant teachers was a, was a normal. But there's not just true teachers. There are many false teachers, as John introduced us to last week. False teachers with their pernicious propaganda are all around us. And John says, don't receive them. He's not talking about people that, you, that, that might have a, a few different emphases in their doctrinal statement. He's not talking about friendly engagement between believers. He's talking to you, believer, not engaging with somebody who is not a believer. I wish there was more friendly dialogue. I love sitting down and talking with my Amil brothers about the millennium in a godly way. I love at Reformation Society when we got half of us Baptistic dispensationalist kind of guys and, and the other half Presbyterian guys and we come together around the gospel. It's healthy stimulation in the dialogue. You know, there's issues of Christian liberty or other wisdom issues that maybe you don't dot your theological I's and cross your theological T's the same as everyone else. John's not addressing that. He's not talking about good, healthy Christian debate and pushback as we dialogue with each other on differences. Not talking about a brother. We're talking about false teachers on a missionary campaign to destroy the basic and fundamental truths of Christianity. Yes, we are told in Scripture to love our enemies, Matthew 5.44. And as Paul exhorts us, feed the hungry, give somebody to drink if they are thirsty. But not the emissary of the enemy. Not the false teacher who intends to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. It's not a warm 
ecumenical hug where we just undiscerningly accept everyone if they say that they are a teacher of the truth. Our Christian duty is clear. It is definite here in verse 10. It is not contradicting the teaching that Christians are to be given to hospitality. Beloved, I hope you are. And if you're not, I hope you're convicted that you're not. And make amends to be obedient to the truth. This command is complementing, not contradicting the teaching of hospitality. We are to be generous to entertain true missionaries of the truth. So John warns, he says, if anyone comes, doesn't bring this teaching, the teaching from the beginning, apostolic, orthodox truth about the real historical Jesus has come in the flesh. Don't receive Him. And don't even, don't even greet Him. It's not saying you can't give a hearty handshake and a smile. He says don't greet Him. At first, when you read that or you hear that from the pulpit, it might sound like it's contradicting the tenor of the New Testament to not greet somebody. All of the New Testament presupposes a culture of hospitality. Go back with me to Romans. Romans 12. I know you know these passages just, 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 just by way of reminder. In Romans 12 and verse 13, as, as the apostles in, instructing believers in, in what their lives should exude from the gospel... Romans 12, 13, he says, you're to be contributing to the needs of the saints, practice and hospitality. You see your brother in need, you, you have the ability to meet that need, and you choose not to meet the need, how does the love of God abide in you, beloved Christian? We're given qualifications of leadership in the local church of the elders who would lead the congregation in the truth and shepherd them. We're told in 1 Timothy 3.2, part of the qualifications of an elder is that he be given to hospitality. If there's not this, this warm welcome of, of others, he's not to be serving in a, an official, uh, official shepherding capacity of the local church. When Paul's also writing to Timothy about the widow's ministry, you know, a, a woman in that day who had lost her husband, all kind of support ceases. And you're thinking about bringing them on to the widow's role of the church, taking care of them, helping them in need, which James tells us in his epistle that real religion and undefiled is this, to take care of the orphans and widows. Take care of people. But the qualification he gives in uh, 1 Timothy 5, if, somebody's gonna, if, a, if a, an older woman that is not of marriable age is going to be taken on the roles, she, she needs to be qualified as, as one who's been known for hospitality. In, uh, in Titus, Paul writes to another young preacher in the faith about ministry. And in Titus 1.8, the, other, the second passage of the New Testament that we find qualifications of elders is that they be hospitable. 
Titus 1.8. How about the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2? He says, make sure you welcome people. You might have entertained angels unaware. When we are exhorted about employing our spiritual gifts in the local assembly, using your gift, serving, ministering it to the body. We read in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, keep fervent love, uh, excuse me, keep fervent in your love for one another. So there's, the, there's one, of the, one of the over 40 one another commands of the New Testament. Keep fervent in that love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, don't be like in the, prov- uh, in the parable that we reflected on in adult Sunday school, uh, the person that doesn't want to get out of bed to help their neighbor. Come back later! You know, don't do it with complaint. Be hospitable. Don't whine and groan about it. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's given you a home. Hope you got an open door policy. You get in somebody's kitchen and they get in yours. That's body life. All throughout the New Testament, reminder after reminder that those that have been set free from their sin and in bondage to Christ are hospitable. They welcome others, but they're discerning. It says, don't greet. It was an absolute demand that brothers in Christ be supported, that they be fed and clothed by the local congregation they visited. I remember the first ministry, full-time pastor, I was out in Illinois, and the church I went to had what was called a prophet's chamber. I'd never heard of a prophet's chamber. What is this? And it was a little tiny apartment place that was all dolled up for when missionaries came home or when you're having a Bible conference, the, the minister of the Word of God could stay there, it'd be comfortable, he'd have a separate area, his separate area, he could go get a nap so he's ready to be fired up and, 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 and uh, let the Word of God unleash during the Bible conferences at night, make it comfortable find out what goodies he likes and stock the good and plenties or the sweet and salties in the basket welcoming him. Let him know that we're so glad you're here to minister the Word of God to us. The church I used to pastor up in New Hampshire, we had a missions apartment. Where's all this come from? It's got biblical backing. Are we known as a local fellowship who is given to hospitality? Do people feel welcome? Uh, on vacation when they come to us and they're looking for a house of worship and you greet them in the name of the Lord Jesus, I trust that they feel that we're hospitable. Remember Jesus' instruction to the apostles when He, when he sent out the twelve? Set your eyes on, on Matthew 10 as just a reminder. Pastor Joy, how many years has it been since we were in Matthew 10? Uh, so let's remind ourselves, two or three years ago when we were here, Jesus is getting ready to launch the missionary enterprise of these disciples. Matthew 10. 
And here was their assignment. Matthew 10, verse number 11. Actually, let's go back. Uh, in verse 8 is where he's saying, you're going to go about, you're going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Verse 9, don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. You, you can't go from city to city, place to place uh, with the big burdens to carry. Don't, don't pile up a bunch or a bag for your journey, verse 10, or even two coats of sandals or a staff. You're going to be mobile, you need to be light. Workers worthy of his support. Verse 11, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who's worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust. Of, you know, as you leave town... You take this symbolic act of shaking off your feet. They shook off the truth while it was proclaimed to them. You shake off the dust of their town, not even taking it with you to the next place, which is going to be teachable and receive the word of truth. Traveling philosophers or religious teachers were very familiar with this phenomenon in the Greco-Roman world. So even Christian preachers relied on the local believers for support and hospitality. Going back to 2 John, in his third epistle, verses uh, 5 through 8, he, uh, in, in 3 John he kind of extends with a different emphasis this biblical hospitality. Notice what he has to say to, to Gaius, whom he loves in the truth, in, in 3 John. Verse 5, he said, Beloved, so he's talking to believers, the church, the local assembly, the called out ones from the world that he's redeemed by his grace, he said, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. You got God's man that comes with the truth to your assembly. You lavish your love and your openness and your hospitality upon him as the messenger of God. And you share in His ministry. And as you send Him on His way with blessing to the next place. I've heard how it's been working out in the body. Excel still more. So the but on the doctrine in the New Testament on hospitality is discrimination. There is a biblical discrimination of love. John says, somebody comes, doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house, don't even give him a greeting. Complete disassociation from such heretics is the only appropriate course of action for genuine believers. Since they are deceivers, if you welcome them in, it would be a mockery to the Father and a sin against Christ to give those who deny the Son. Remember what he already said. He said, if somebody comes to you as those who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as come in the flesh, so they've got some kind of heresy, you fill in the blank of what heresy a false teacher is trying to bring into the church. 
It would be a mockery to the Father and Son to give them refuge. It would be hatred towards the brethren to give a place of respect within the community of faith. It would be to partake in their unbelief and their promotion of the hatred of the truth. You're actually, by, giving, by aiding and embedding the enemy, you, are, you just yoked yourself up in their false ministry. That's what John said. Partaken in their unbelief and their hatred. Notice who such a statement comes from. How did John constantly identify himself in the, his gospel account? He never says his name but he constantly refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. He was so overtaken by the grace of God and the face of Christ. Jesus loved me, set his love upon me. This is the apostle of love. He's gotten his name as the apostle of love who's telling us to discriminate in our love. And this follows his exhortation to love back in verses 5 and 6. He said, this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And that statement is consistent with the command of verse 10, not to welcome nor greet false teachers. No benefit or aid of any type. You might think, what's the big fat hairy deal here? You think about people, whether, whether you've been a participant in this or not, People, when they're getting ready to pay their monthly bills and all the different places, you see where people write their checks to and you find out whether they're a promoter of the truth or a promoter of error. I could give examples, but time doesn't allow it. One New Testament example of uh, the proper reception, if I were to cite one more, since we were in Acts, if you wanted to jot down Acts 17... Verses 5 through 9. As we stumble towards a biblical balance of truth in love. Actually, let's, let's go visit the text real quick. Down at, uh, back in, in Acts 17. Race you there. Acts 17. This is Jason who received... Paul and became identified with him publicly. Acts 17.5 We're told that the Jews being jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. Why? Because that's the prophet's chamber Paul was staying in. So they, they, they couldn't get to him, so they, they brought out Jason. They're seeking to bring him out to the people. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, some brethren, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. I'm not going to fill in the white areas of the passage. I don't know this, but we're never told Jason was ever part of the preaching ministry of Paul, but he was just as involved because without him supporting and taking care of Paul in his home, Paul wouldn't be able to be there as an itinerant missionary. So they couldn't get to Paul and his cohorts, so they, they uh, tried to get through Jason. Verse 7, Jason has, has welcomed them. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Jason's at fault. He welcomed in this guy from the way. 
saying there's another King Jesus. They stirred up the crowd, the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Kudos to Jason! Practicing biblical hospitality to the apostle. But if you do that with a false teacher and you welcome them in, no holes barred, that taints, it not only threatens as gangrene to the local church, but it even taints the witness to the lost community all around us. Guilt by association is a powerful tool in the hands of the enemy of the gospel. Our day and age, it, it wants to promote tolerance rather than discrimination according to truth. They, they've diminished the sense of danger that heresy brings, having lost conviction about the truth. And before you're too quick to dismiss this biblical discrimination, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You discriminate in parent, shepherding your kids. What, if you've got a relative that maybe has questionable character as to the uh, menace and morale, spiritual or, or even physical welfare to your children, you're not going to send them for a sleepover there. Such relatives must be excluded. Parents must balance their concern for relatives, our love for the relatives, and not being the black sheep of the family versus what kind of impact they are going to have on my kids. Is it going to be unhealthy? Is it going to be dangerous? He's not saying, John's not saying be hateful, be spiteful for the false teachers. He's saying don't welcome them as brothers. Don't greet them as one who has your blessing upon their life. Don't send them on their way because you share in their evil deeds. Notice how he continues this command of warning. Verse 11, he, he adds this little snippet. If you give him greeting you participate in his evil deeds. Any support automatically shows sanction of antichrist teaching. When you support false teaching, it's not innocent. It's not an insignificant act. It's a big deal. You see all the warnings against false teaching in the New Testament, and especially this command here in 2 John, with our hospitality. Supreme loyalty to God and His Word alone must characterize true believers. A, a, a greeting results in participation. The, the word that John uses here, koinone, to communicate the significance of your identification, you know what that term, you've, 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 you've frequented in your studies of 1 John, koinonia is fellowship. And he's suggesting here, matter of fact, he's not just suggesting, it's blatantly obvious that you participate in his evil deeds. Wickedness, the term paneros, evil. You remember John in his gospel account? He recorded Jesus calling the highest honed religious leaders of his day. What Jesus say of those religious false teachers? He said they were liars and sons of Paneros, sons of the devil, the evil one, John 8, 44. And any 
unorthodox teachers that we welcome, we share in their evil deeds, their propagation of error. It's that kindred form, koinonia, fellowship, used in John's first epistle is meant to convey your fellowship and with Satan and his demons and demonic doctrines. You know, as I was thinking, well, how, how, how do we illustrate that? Uh, if you like watching any military movies or reading military novels, you think about somebody who sells secrets to an enemy. You take a Navy commander who had access to military secrets, sells them to the enemy. He's apprehended and subsequently sentenced. Should he go to jail? Absolutely. What's his family's response? What's his friend's response? Reporters interview the guy's dad who doesn't want to turn his back on his beloved son. Ask him for his rea- you ask the dad for his reaction. The father replies, well, my son whom I loved and still do betrayed his country and now has to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. The father in that scenario, in that case, separates himself from his son and regards him as a fellow citizen who's transgressed the law. So any who comes to us and does not have the commands from the beginning as John has referred to, we don't welcome them they have transgressed. They've, as John said earlier in this epistle, they've gone beyond the truth. We don't want to share in their evil deeds. It's no small matter. They bring to us a Christ that is not the Christ of Scriptures. You want to find out how healthy a church is? You, you take all, all these pastors that are uh, candidate and looking for ministry and ministries that are looking for a pastor. And if, if that pastor takes the congregation through the Gospels, Matthew, and presents the Christ to Scripture, that's going to show whether or not that church is primarily believers or a big mixture of unbelievers as people are confronted Sunday after Sunday with not the Christ of their own imagination, but the Christ of Scripture. It's no small matter. Christianity stands or falls with its Christology. Irenaeus relates that the church father Polycarp, when asked by the notorious heretic Martian, do you know me? replied, I do know you, the firstborn of Satan. Now, that's a way to win friends and influence you spawn of the devil. John, the apostle, who's writing to us in Second John here, once encountered Serinthius, another notorious heretic, in all places, a public bathhouse in Ephesus. And instead of greeting him, John turned and fled, exclaiming to those with him, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthius, the enemy of truth, is within, unquote. You might say, well, that's harsh. 
That's intolerant. Not necessarily saying the same tone or even the right same adjectives to describe when we reject false teachers and we don't greet them in the gospel. Such emissaries of Satan must be exposed and shunned, not affirmed and welcomed. Yeah, they're going to cry foul, harsh, intolerant, unloving, but love doesn't reach out to false teachers. It forbids them from dangerous spiritual deception finding a foothold in the beloved, in the congregation. So John's pastoral admonition is consistent even with his Savior who denounced false teachers. Remember, Jesus called them ravenous wolves in Matthew 7, 15. Thieves, robbers, John 10, 1. Those whose only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. So don't greet them. I trust I haven't beat a dead horse to death, but I trust that this is freshly in our mind as we contemplate biblical hospitality, what we promote to promoters of the truth versus what we withhold from false teaching. And as John says, don't greet them, he also says, look for me. Notice his farewell. So he gave the basis of hospitality, the behavior of hospitality, and the bounds of our hospitality. But notice finally in verses 12 and 13, the blessings of hospitality. Those that are in the beloved, in the sphere of abounding gospel love, relationships that are forged around true gospel fellowship. Notice how he concludes it's not on that harsh tone of reject the false teacher. But yes, reject false teaching while you welcome those that bring you the truth. He says, I've got many things to write to you. Teaching's not over just because the epistle's coming to the end, dear sister. I've got a lot more to teach you. Keep school and keep learning. But I want to do the rest of it face to face. Literally, John, uh, th this idiom literally means mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. You think, ew, that's not very sanitary. Uh, this same idiom is used back in Numbers 12.8 as you reflect upon God's relationship with Moses. And we are told that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks with a friend. He spoke mouth-to-mouth. That same idiom John claims as his own here. Face-to-face -face is the only way for true fellowship. Everything else is just incomplete substitutes. Can I give a pastoral concern here? I'm a little concerned about some comments I find on social media and Facebook. We've got friends who are looking for churches, can't find biblical ministries, and we pray for them. Some people on the other end of the spectrum, since they can't find the most right church, they don't go anywhere and they violate Scripture, they forsake the assembly. And so where do they find their quote-unquote fellowship? The World Wide Web. That is not fellowship. I can listen to some great teaching on the internet, 
I can have some great doctrinal dialogue with brothers and sisters in Christ. Can't have fellowship. I can have a conversation, but it's so easy to misconstrue. You, know, you, you, you contradict somebody's statement on social media and all of a sudden they treat you as a heretic. They misconstrue something. Either you didn't phrase something right or you left... Because you know, communication was drastically affected in the fall, was it not? I can get an amen on that, right? It's hard to communicate what we really mean. It's hard enough when we use words... But when we're texting and emailing, you can't read body language. You tell a joke that somebody takes personally is offended, they can't see your smile if you don't type the smile in. It takes body language and tone and facial expressions to communicate. It is easy to read into things that aren't intended and so people are left to wonder, is he being a jerk right now? No, I really wasn't. Usually I am. Many don't even follow up with the question, did you really mean it this way so, so that you could defend what you're saying? In personal conversation and fellowship, we can give immediate pushback. I didn't mean that. Spoken words are less easily misunderstood than written words. It takes us a lot of work to exegete Scripture to make sure we're not putting words in the Apostle's mouth, right? So we, 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 we pain ourselves to make sure that we are understanding authorial intent. What does John mean by what he is saying to us? It's hard to do. I must move on from my social media illustration, though I still use it. Flip back to 1 John. You can't say it any clearer or any more vivid than John does in his first epistle, in his first chapter, and his first verses. Here's what he was desirous of in Koinonia. That when people are reconciled with God and brought near with each other for fellowship, here's his passionate pen writing. 1 John 1.1 What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. We have seen and testified, proclaimed to you the eternal life which is with the Father and manifest to us. What we have seen and heard. Who's writing? John! I saw and heard and felt. I witnessed those miracles. I witnessed the Son of God. I, I handled the living Word of God. This is the Jesus I proclaim to you. The triune God I proclaim to you. We proclaim to you so that you too might have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So as we've been invited into fellowship with the triune God through faith in Christ, we go to the Father in prayer, through the Son, energized by the Spirit, and we invite others to come with us. We come to the table together. We serve together. We enjoy fellowship, and such intimacy requires personal presence. Personal presence. That's what John's appealing to. Dear sister, I've written to you 
He writes to the elect lady here in 2 John. Got a lot more to say, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. He hadn't even filled up the papyrus yet, his scroll. But he was going to leave the, the rest for his personal presence where they could experience joy together. The blessing of hospitality is full joy. Full joy. As we're speaking face to face, there we can experience fullness of joy. The apostle used the same wording back in 1 John 1.4 that we just read. When believers uphold a biblical standard for fellowship, joy is amidst those believers because the truth of the Word of God is maintained, not because it's minimized or, or negated or done away with. Let me give you a free footnote here. You just got to let, let the bikes pass anyways. If you took elect lady at the very first verse as the church, you got to be consistent to take this children and sister in verse 13 as another congregation. But again, going back to the plain and natural sense, dictates that these nieces or nephews of the elect lady, verse 1, are sending their greeting via the Apostle John, greet her and my cousins on my behalf. Greet them. Oftentimes you greet somebody, a spizomai, you greet them with a holy kiss. Now we can dispense with the holy kiss thing. But you're expressing mutual acceptance together of affection on the basis of shared conviction and commitment to the apostolic Christ and His truth. Both, both elect ladies were rejoicing in God's sovereign grace. They wished to share the elders' concern to strengthen the bonds of life that unite all saints. The, the New Testament, you study it. Study the greetings. Study fellowship. Study joy. The New Testament knows nothing of perfect joy outside of fellowship with each other through fellowship with the Father and the Son in truth. They all go hand in hand, hand in glove. So as you seek to take this epistle home with you and live in light of it, one implied very basic takeaway of the many. Do you regularly schedule time with fellow truth lovers? Just putting on the calendar and figuring out later how you're going to fit it all in. If you don't put it on the calendar, it's just not going to happen. Days and weeks and months get away from us. But we're talking about those that you've covenanted with in membership. You just put on the calendar and you figure out later how to make everything fit and how to juggle everything in life. It's not enough to avoid the wrong. Stay away from the false teachers, John said to us this morning. It's not enough to not accept the false without applying the right and welcoming regularly into our fellowship, gospel-centered fellowship, as we spur each other on to love and good deeds. Sharpening each other's theological thinking and praying with each other in the battle of sanctification, both with and for each other. There's true joy there. You might still be wondering and scratching your head, what's the significance of Second John? 
I think that if the church really got 2 John, there never would have been things in the recent history of the church like ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together United, believer and unbeliever. You cannot greet one as a fellow Christian if they don't hold to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So John ushers a warning. He says, don't welcome as a brother those that don't bring this truth to you, but we still engage in conversation with Roman Catholics and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, and you fill in the blank with those that we're constantly sharing the gospel of Christ with, because God still saves sinners. And as long as they're teachable and not locked into their system, and they lend you an open ear and open heart, you engage them at that level. But we don't welcome them as brothers. Some have deemed this command in verses 10 and 11 as so unloving and so discriminating, not just discerning, but downright unloving. You look at some of the early commentators like Barclay and C.H. Dodd who had no place for this verse. Furthermore, if we're talking about those that we receive, those that we don't, how about uh, we, we can't even greet professing brothers who won't deal with their sin and they're under church discipline, their conduct betraying their profession of being a Christian because they're, they're pursuing disobedience. So, with the beloved apostle, there's a strong stand of opposition against evangelists of error that's essential to the health of the church. Second John is so relevant. It's relevant to those so tolerant that they'll condemn nobody's views. It's even applicable to the person on the other end of the discussion, those who are so intolerant, they condemn everybody whose view slightly divert, diverts from their own. So we're, we're seeking to balance with John truth and love, neither compromise nor ultra-separation will find support in 2 John, but a balance with discernment. There must be careful investigation and evaluation of those invited in. You know, we're having a concert next month. You might wonder, well, we don't do a lot of that. No, we don't. Because many of the music ministries out there would not support a lot of what we teach from the pulpit here. And so there's that evaluation of, what do you believe? You know, uh, and, and that's not to say that there won't be some things that have to be adjusted. When we consider missionaries, evaluation. The issue of truth is crucial and must be preserved at all costs. The old uh, reformer Luther said it well when he said, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. To act in any other manner would be to invite spiritual suicide into the body. Careful what kind of doctrine you fund as a local church and as an individual part of the church. There are a lot of right things, but we teach and train in the truth. So our best defense against false teachers is walking obediently in the sphere of God's revealed truth. Better than studying the cults and the isms and schisms and false teaching 
is to study the real deal so that anything that passes before our eyes or ears that is not the truth of Scripture is very quickly and easily found out for what it is. Excavations at the ancient city of Pompeii have revealed many historical insights and some stirring examples of faithfulness, which I trust that you will exude. When Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city, many people were buried in the, in the ruins. Some were found in cellars as if they had gone there for safety. Others found in the upper rooms of buildings, probably for the same reason. One Roman sentinel was found standing at the city gate where he had been placed by the captain with his hands still grasping his weapon. So there, on that day, while all the ground rumbled and shook beneath his feet, there while the floods of ashes and cinders covered him, he stood at his post. And so there, after thousands of years at this excavation, his faithfulness was revealed once more. It's how faithful we're to be to Jesus and His truth. We're not to be deceived by those who would sway us from truth. We're to stand firm, strong, with conviction, resolute until Jesus comes or calls us home. We're to be discerning with the truth in love. We're to be found at our posts with our weapons in hand, believing the truth and living the truth for His eternal glory. Would you pray? God, make us resolute. Make us people of conviction voracious in our appetite for the truth, proactive in our fellowship one with another and with our hospitality, diligent in our study of the unerring Word of God. Make us people of the book, both in what we believe and how we practice it. We'll give you all the praise and the glory. Amen. David.